to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a Sports Ethos production. I'm your host, Candace Hagens, and as always, it's a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you guys. So, if you are listening to the sound of my voice right now, I want to congratulate you. I want to congratulate you for sitting through probably one of the more painful preseason games that one could watch. And if you still watch that and came back to listen to this podcast, you are a true football fan. Not just Seahawks fan, but football fan in general. You got to love the stuff. If that, if you watch that and you kill coming back for more. Because I got to be honest, for me to watch that game, I just kept having to tell myself, it's just the preseason. It's just the preseason. It's just the preseason. That was tough. It was a tough watch. The Seattle Seahawks, as you might be able to conclude by now, lost to the Chicago Bears in their second preseason game. They lose that game 27-11. to Geno Smith threw 10 of 18 or 112 yards, zero touchdowns, zero interceptions. He was sacked twice and had a quarterback rating of 74.5. Jacob Eason played instead of Drew Locke, who was originally supposed to start. Jacob Eason threw 17 for 35. He had 141 yards, zero touchdowns, zero interceptions, and a rating quarterback rating of 59.3 with one sack. As the team and as the players watched that game, I'm sure the thought was that it was a, it's a disappointment that Drew Locke was not able to compete in that previous game. Just an update for you guys. Drew Locke has been has officially tested negative for COVID and he has been participating in practice all week. Pete Carroll has said that Drew Locke will have his opportunity week three. It'll be interesting to see how the team adjusts to that, but I still think it was a missed opportunity in prime time for Drew Locke to be able to put on display, you know, what he can do, really, and that he can tamper down on some of the weaknesses that are a part of his game. It would have been interesting to see, but instead of that, the team got a whole lot of no offense. And I'll be honest, no quarterback was helped. This this game was tough from top to bottom. The offense struggled to be able to sustain drives in large part due to six drops and 12 penalties. The offense was helped in no way by those penalties nor those drops by wide receivers. That was the second most drops in the preseason. Jordan Love had more drops at eight. But no other quarterback really had that kind of that massive amount of drops. Just three for Jacob Eason had three drops that he had to deal with. Geno had three drops that he had to deal with. But they absolutely were drive killers for this offense. Charles Cross, he struggled to start at the snap. He struggled with the timing on that quite a bit. He had four false starts. That was disappointing to see. Like I said, Geno Smith nor Jacob Eason were done any favors by any of their other teammates. I think that the offense could have done better. The defense still struggled with tackling with 14 missed tackles in total. That's one less than the previous game in preseason game one. But there just wasn't enough improvement, I felt like, from one game to the next. 
And granted, it was a short week, so there wasn't going to be the opportunity to, I guess, get it out, get it on, get it in drills and, and really hammer that down the way it probably be needed to. Um, so that was unfortunate to see again. It's understandable to see, but like I said, it's unfortunate. What what you would love as a Seahawks fan is for that to naturally take care of itself as they play more reps. Just them playing game two in and of itself to naturally fix the tackling issues. And that was obviously not the case because it's more than just about the tackling. Some of the pursuit angles were still very, very bad. And as a result, Chicago Bears got more explosive plays than they probably should have been given the opportunity to have. And it sustained their offense for longer spans than it should have. And then special teams was just a mess. Justin Coleman paying no attention whatsoever to his placement on the one-yard line and then having his foot in the end zone, so it being called back as a touchback. touchback, I don't even know. He doesn't even have an excuse. As a veteran, that's unexcusable on special teams. I would have understood if it was a rookie, but that was... Like I said, unacceptable from Justin Coleman. And then the muffed punt by Kay Johnson that immediately led to a touchdown by the Bears right before halftime with only a few seconds left in the second half. That was an absolute momentum killer. Any momentum that I think could have been potentially gained back, they were down 10-0 in the second half. You can sort of, you know, it's a two-possession. Yeah, you just need a field goal, you need a touchdown. That you feel like you're still in the game. But 17-0, that was such a huge momentum killer for the Seahawks. And it was something I don't think they could ever recover from as a result of that. They were constantly behind the eight ball just because of that touchdown alone. And we'll come back to talk about Kate Johnson, but that was just a missed opportunity. Jason Myers missed a critical kick. He has not been showing himself well. In terms of kickers, I personally would like to see some competition brought in. I don't know why competition has not been brought in to compete with Jason Myers. This is supposed to be a always-compete mindset that Pete Carroll brings. And this and the quarterback battle are huge questions in terms of, is it really always-compete? So just an all-around disappointing performance from the Seahawks. That They look bad. They look like a team that's not going to win more than three games. Now, a lot should be considered. A lot of starters didn't play. It could have made all the difference in the world in those ga- in that game. And I think more than anything, what it spoke to is a lack of depth. So those are just some of my early observations. There are some silver linings. There were a few silver linings. We're going to talk about those. We're going to, of course, go through the questions that we have now after watching that game. A lot to talk about, a lot to get into. So let's talk some Hawks. So let's start off with the obvious, and that is the quarterback battle. Well, or really the lack thereof in that regard, as I mentioned Drew Locke did miss the game that he was slated to start with against the against Chicago Bears due to COVID, and thus Geno started the first half. Jacob Eason came in, and he played the second half. Now, one thing can be agreed on for sure, and that's that Geno Smith did not put his best foot forward, and he definitely did not take a hold of the competition. For whatever reasons, people disagree 
That is something that I think anybody who watched that game can agree upon, including myself. Now, the degree, the degree with which Gino left that door open or the degree with which Gino played or the opinion on how Gino played is differing amongst fans and media members alike. However, a commonality that I've seen is if you go back and watch the All-22, Gino's performance was not as bad as people initially reacted to or responded as. The Gino hate that came during and after that game was very strong. And I do understand why. But I think this is three Hawks, this is Seahawks 360, and it is our job here in this podcast to look at things from every angle. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Gino has always been the less entertaining option or probably the least inter- entertaining option possible at the quarterback position. But I still stand by that he is a solid option. He is solid. He is nothing more, but he's definitely not anything less. G- Geno Smith is not a bad quarterback. He is simply a backup. That, I mean, he is what he is. Let, the reality is this team is playing two backups. And if you were expecting anything le- anything more, then you're obviously going to be extraordinarily disappointed. You can't hold Geno to starter standards. And that's what I feel like part of the expectation or part of the conclusions are coming to. That was never going to be Geno's game. He's going to be a game manager at best. And you're trying to get Drew Locke to become a game manager. So you have to look at it from game management perspective when you're evaluating either of these quarterbacks, in my opinion, who can manage the game better. And so if you're looking at that, the drops were critical. The drops and the false starts killed drives. Geno actually had about three big-time throws, with which we explained earlier in the previous podcast, PFF grades them as having elite location, accuracy, and timing. And Geno Smith had those. He had three deep balls down the field, and he and they were not caught to no fault of his own. So for those who say Geno can't push the ball down the field, Geno has by, by far had the most big-time throws in this preseason over any quarterback, including Drew Locke. So Geno does have the ability to throw the ball down the field. What he struggles with is decision-making, so being decisive in his throws, being confident in his throws. And he doesn't have a lot of charisma when he's playing, so it's not fun to watch in any way. He doesn't have his own style or charisma that he brings to the game. Like I said, he is the textbook definition of a game manager, and he needs to be helped out by his wide receivers. His offensive line did a good job of protecting him, but they did a terrible job of avoiding penalties that would hurt the offense, particularly Charles Cross, as I mentioned. Geno Smith's adjusted field goal percentage is actually 81%. And if you go back and you look through all of the games, Geno Smith was actually the number one ranked quarterback in all of preseason who's played more than 10 snaps, which is incredible to believe. Now, Against the starters and the elite guys, he's he's going to pale in comparison to those guys, obviously. But Gino is about the best kind of game, game manager that you can get. But things do have to be right around him. And that's the case with any game manager, which, like I said, that's what Drew Locke is going to have to be 
if he's going to win this starting job over Gino. That's something that's important to consider on any front. I have heard a discourse recently that Jacob Eason actually outplayed Gino, and that is incorrect. Jacob Eason had a 59.3 quarterback rating. He did not outplay Gino. Now, what I did think Eason did a good job of that Gino just struggles to, to muster is playing with passion and playing with urgency. And even sometimes maybe playing with confidence a decisiveness that I just mentioned before. Eason does a great job of that, and so he's much more entertaining to watch, even though you have no idea where his passes are going to go. Some of his passes were just absolutely errant throws. You can barely tell what receiver he was intending to target at the time. He's so unpredictable that I don't think Jacob Jacob Eason is a realistic option. So you want to consider that when you're talking about game managers. Game managers have to be predictable to some regard, and that's not Jacob Eason. So for those who are claiming to cut Geno and and put make Eason quarterback too, that's never going to happen. Eason's way too unpredictable to, to even consider doing that. That's the reality. But like I said, he played with passion. He played with heart. You could tell he wanted it out there on the field. And Geno just doesn't have that kind of personality. I think he's better. I think he's a better off the field leader than he is an on the field leader. It just doesn't translate for him in whatever for whatever reason. And I also thought Geno played a better game in game one. I'm not gonna pretend like Geno was flawless here. Now he had his errors. It was just the reality. He had an embarrassing stumble that ultimately ended up blending into a sack. He also resigned the place so early he didn't even try to get up. So for those of you who say and who use that as an indictment on him, that's such a valid criticism. When Geno Smith fell, he fell over Travis Homer's foot. He did lay down with the ball under him, but he didn't try to get up. He wasn't immediately sacked. He wasn't. If Geno Smith had got up and had some more fight in him, and tried to make something out of that play. Now, I understand a lot of times that leads to turnovers, but at the very least, get up and try to get some more yards. I mean, and he didn't do that. He pretty much, as soon as he failed, he got the ball back, and he just waited for somebody to come hit him. That's a valid criticism. That's something that you hate to see. You want more fight in a quarterback than that, and that was disappointing. I think that's something that Pete Carroll looks at, and he says, we want more from you from that. Try to get some yards back. Try to make up for the mistake have some urgency in the situation. And that's just what he lacked. There were also situations on quick throws, you know, behind the behind the line of scrimmage, throws, short throws that I think could have been more accurate. They were they were it was a narrow miss, so it wasn't a miss by a lot, but I did see some some wobble in his ball a couple times, some things that just did not look good on tape. The the receiver was ultimately able to make a catch, but they probably didn't get as many yards as they could as they could have if Geno had had better ball placement on some of those throws. He's shown an ability to do that, so that's not exactly what you're worried about from Geno Smith. But I just feel like he could have been better in those areas. And it also just seemed like as things got worse, Geno just seemed more resigned to just have it be what it is. He 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 was not 
trying to be a difference maker in any regard. And I also think that's a huge criticism. He did not try to make the best out of the opportunities. He just simply was resigned to what they what they were. And the team the team picks up on that. And I think they pick up on that energy and it makes them try less hard if the quarterback's not going to show that he's doing everything that he can when things go wrong. And so then you get a trickle effect of this overall lack of energy, lack of urgency, lack of passion that you saw out there that you hate to see on a football field, especially by a Pete Carroll coach team. And he prides himself on motivating guys and being a culture changer. And you just didn't see that in this preseason game, especially when Gino was in. It got better when Eason was in. But like I said, that's what makes people say they want to start Eason. To a lot of people, those things matter more than the tangible technicalities of football placement or accuracy or timing. And I understand. I understand that sentiment. And I think that's exactly what Pete Carroll looks at when he looks at Geno's performance and said he, and says he played okay. I think he does look at some of those some of those intangibles that I think were missing in those moments, those opportunities of challenge. And I think Pete was disappointed that Geno did not try to make or take advantage of the opportunities he was given or the challenges that he was given and make make the best out of them. He he just not he did not seem to do that. I think that disappointed Carroll. And I think since this since this game, Pete Carroll has changed his tune about Geno. I think he still wants Geno to be the starting quarterback. But I think that he sees Drew Locke as even. He's even used the words. The quarterback competition is even now. When just a week ago, Gino was he was still saying Geno is still clearly ahead of Drew Locke. You don't even have to ask me that question. He referred to a media member and says, and says Gino is obviously the head of this thing and now it's an even competition Gino did underwhelm no matter how you want to put it he could have played better in an opportunity that was basically it was a gift wrapped to him it was this was a gift wrapped opportunity with Drew Locke being out Gino being the start of the whole time all he needed to do was have command over the offense have be decisive in his decision making be accurate in his in his throws and be consistent and reliable and he did not he was not able to do that he was not able to be without flaws and if he's going to have flaws then it's just going to help out drew lock because gino's main benefit the benefit of having gino on the field one of the few is that he's gotten a lot better about not being as prone to mistakes as especially a drew lock would be like i said if they're going to make the same amount of mistakes then you might as well just go with drew lock so it'll be interesting to see how this preseason game looks. Pete Carroll did officially announce that in this next game that Gino would start, but that Drew Locke would get plenty of playing time. And I hope that means a very limited number of slaps for Gino. I don't I don't really want to see Gino in this game. I feel like the team, everybody, has had enough assessment of Gino. And maybe they just want to compare the two on the same game. But I don't think Gino needs any more than 10 snaps this game. Personally, I mean, if you just want to see him with DK and Lockett and then and then watch Drew with DK and Lockett to compare apples to apples, fine. But I don't want to see anything more than that. I think they've got enough data to be able to put together everything they know about Gino. Gino hasn't changed a lot about his game. 
the question mark here is Drew Locke and what he can be. And so I really hope that in this third preseason game, Drew Locke really does take pretty much all of the snaps because I think he's earned the right to take all of those snaps in a preseason game and just see how how things go. And you take advantage of how can he take advantage of the situation. But now that I've gone in depth on the quarterback battle, let's talk about some of the positives because there were some positives to take away. I think one of the most unexpected surprises was how far the rookie cornerbacks, Kobe Bryant and Tariq Woolen bounced back. They really, they had a terrible performance in game one and Tariq Woolen ended up being the highest graded defensive player by PFF grading out at a 76.1. Kobe Bryant not far behind him at a 72.6. They both made some incredible tackles, huge progress in their tackles. Tariq Woolen made a touchdown-saving tackle, actually. Kobe Bryant had two passes defensed. They both just showed promise on defense. They showed what you hoped they would show. They, They took lumps. They had some challenges, and they weren't thwarted by those challenges they embraced those challenges and they challenged themselves to be better than that and they absolutely were able to do that and to execute in that way and that's one of the most exciting things that you can see about the rookies you expect that they're going to take their lumps their rookie year but what you hope is that they can bounce back and learn from those opportunities or rather learn from those experiences another positive takeaway is after what looked like a season-ending injury by Damian Lewis, it was reported that he is okay. He has a lateral ankle sprain, and so he'll miss some time, probably early in the season, but my guess is we can expect to see him around week three. I think he'll be fully back to back, ready to go. Now, the hope is that he can still play at the, I think, very good level that he was playing in in the preseason. You hope that he can continue that into the regular season. He can translate that and that this ankle sprain isn't an ongoing issue or that it doesn't hurt any of his athleticism or agility. That's what you hope, but that's the good news, especially when I thought for sure that Damian Lewis was gone for the whole season. And while the run blocking does It was not as efficient as the previous game had showed. I do think that one thing that translates consistently is that the Seahawks will be able to run the ball, which is great because we know that's what Pete Carroll wants to do, and we know that's what this team will need to do in order to have any shot at having an effective offense. They will not be able to rely upon their quarterbacks to carry the team. And I thought that the offensive line blocking, despite the penalties, was very promising. That was a huge bright side something I was excited to see. Charles Cross has yet to allow a single pressure. There are only two offensive linemen who have played, or rookie offensive linemen, who have played in the preseason and not allowed a single pressure. Charles Cross is one of them, and that is exciting if you are a Seattle Seahawks fan. I know it is exciting to me. I also just want to say that I think that the tackling did improve, even though the numbers won't indicate that. I think that there were several culprits up of the missed tackling. I think it was less of a just epidemic. And I think it was a little bit more in isolated cases, players repeatedly making the same mistakes. I think that Marquise Blair in particular, I think he had an abysmal performance. 
He whiffed on a lot of tackles, taking poor pursuit angles, not wrapping up. He didn't. Sometimes he doesn't even use his arms, which I don't understand when he's trying to tackle guys. He wants to just play football like it's Madden, and he just hits the hit stick button all the time. In his tackling pursuit, his fundamentals are poor, and I know why he struggled with injury. Even when he plays, you, you understand why the coaches don't fully trust him because his fundamentals are poor. And while you'd love to see the violence and you love to see the effort that he puts in, if you can't get down those fundamentals, you can never gain the, the trust of the coaching staff. And that wasn't good for him. But other outside of that, outside of him and a few others who have been cut to this point, I do think that the tackling will be improved in the third preseason game. And I think that by the time they get around to week one, there are a couple weeks between the last preseason game and week one against the Broncos. I think that the tackling will be much improved just between the starters playing for one, as well as I think those guys, even the young guys, they'll have more reps. They'll show more progress and it shouldn't be as bad of issue. You'll still see it. You'll still see it show up. I think, I think there'll be some plays that the Broncos get the opportunity to get because of poor tackling, but I don't think it will be as consistent of a problem as we have all been witnessing in the preseason games. And sadly, that's going to conclude my list of things to be optimistic about from this game. There were poor takeaways. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. Special teams, Jason Myers missing a kick. The punt returns were heartless. Freddie Swain did just abysmal job, I think. That, I didn't even see any effort from him. And then the leverage, the coverage was just awful. It, and missed assignments. It was bad. So special teams is a huge concern. I'm concerned about who's going to do the punt returns. I'm concerned about the coverage. Ben Barkervin, known as BBK, was a strong special teams performer. He's not present. John Radigan is not present. They're both on injured reserve at this time. Ugo Amadi, who was a good special teams player, has been traded. And so they've got these young guys in here who are just making a lot of mistakes that the Seahawks can't afford to have. They're going to be depending on their defense their special teams, and their run game to help carry the quarterbacks. And all of those things need to be in place in order to do that. So that's something that I am worried about. You understand Nick Bellore did not get a lot of snaps, so he will play more. But even at the time that he played, he did not play particularly well. I do not think, at least PFF does not think so. And if I were the Seahawks, I would be scouring the waiver wire to find best, better special teams contributors. Now, the good news is in regards to that issue, that's something that will be the case. You can find good tacklers. You can find guys who know how to deal with leverage and, and coverage in the punt and kick returns. That you can find in the waiver wire. And so they, they will still have a couple of weeks to acclimate those guys with special teams. It doesn't change that much. It's pretty you know, either you're good at it or you're not. And so they can find those guys. They can cut guys who who do not who are not contributing and find guys who can help contribute on special teams. They just got to be willing to do it. So that's the good news. I would not completely panic about that issue. It is a concern. But in my opinion, as long as the front office and the coaching staff addresses that concern, I don't think it has to be one that lingers tremendously well 
uh, tremendously badly into the regular season. Will it be a strength? Will it be a top 10 special units team? Probably not, but I think you can get a serviceable special team squad. And if you can do that, I think you can work with the rest. But another thing that's an alarming concern is the pass rush seems to be pretty inconsistent. While Daryl Taylor has been consistently having a 15% win win rate, which isn't that bad, it's pretty good, pretty good win rate. If, for example, Nick Bosa generally has a 21-23% win rate in his career, so it's below that level, but it's still Pro Bowl capable. I mean, it's not best in the league, but it's capable. But I think Daryl Taylor is just having a hard time learning to finish steel. And I fear that he might be getting hyped up more in training camp than what we'll see in the in the actual regular season. I have concern that it won't translate. He's not been able to get, especially against preseason, you know, offensive lines. He's not been able to accumulate as many pressures as I would have hoped. He had one hurry, one pressure in this previous game. Well, sorry, one one hit in one hurry in this previous game. But he had like 20 plus pass rushing stamps and you just want to see him apply more pressure more consistently. That's not a good enough rate, I think, to really give the pass rush or to for this team to see the pass rush that they need. And so that's a concern for me. It's underwhelming. I don't think I think it'll be better than the previous year, but that's not a high a high bar to catch it was pretty pass rush was an obvious issue and so like I said while it looks improved it still seems inconsistent one of the more consistent pass rushers has actually been Alton Robinson surprisingly it's been interesting to see him um be more effective with with his rushes he's graded out well and not only in PFF but I think he's flashes in terms of he's had two he had two pressures and two hits in this previous game he's doubled the production of Daryl Taylor, and they've gotten approximately the same amount of snaps. So that that's something that's interesting to see. Uh, Alton Robinson, Alton Robinson seems to be bouncing back from a pretty lackluster year. But I actually, you know, I hope that they play him more because I think this team is going to need him. Boye Mafe got injured in this game, and I think he's going to be out for some time. And so the lack of pass rush depth will be even more immediate. I think even more obvious if a uh, Another thing I'm doing, I'm scouring waiver wire to just see if they can get any impact players to to be able to be a disruption at least. And Daryl Taylor has got to learn how to finish these rushes. It is critical for the Seattle Seahawks. And so things will look different. You hope that when he's around better starters, maybe that'll impact his play. So maybe when he's teaming up with Shelby Harris and Puna Ford and those guys, maybe – He'll look more effective. Maybe he'll be better at finishing or maybe there'll be, you know, somebody else, Al Woods or somebody to be able to finish off some of those sacks. But it is a concern. Yuchenna Nwosu did look better than he did in the first preseason game. And so he seems to be getting his legs up under him. But those are your two guys and this team is depending on them heavily. So they've got to show, they've got to step up. I think they've got to show more than they've been showing in this preseason and they've for sure got to show more than they than I think they've shown in their careers to this point.
And the final negative takeaway that I had, which was the same takeaway I had from the previous game, and that is this linebacker dip is absolutely killer. It just is. It's pretty troubling to me that the Seahawks would go this far in the training camp and not have addressed the obvious weakness at linebacker depth. Maybe they plan to address it at the end of the preseason when final cuts are made. I sure hope so. But to me, the linebacker situation is just as obvious as the cornerback situation was last year. It just seems like a reincarnation. Instead of the corner issue, now there's a linebacker issue. Sure, Jordan Brooks, I think, can be great. Cody Barton is mediocre, in my opinion, at best. But that can get you by, especially if the Seahawks are, be, are they're rumored to be doing a lot more safety looks, 3-4 safety looks. And if that's the case, then I think they'll be fine. But from a depth perspective, I think the step, the drop-off is pretty significant. I think then you go from having starter-level players to basically practice squad guys. And there's got to be some middle ground, some guys who can reliably be tackle, who can really provide and contribute in some kind of way to relieve a Jordan Books or Cody Barton. And that's right now, it's not on the roster. I think Vi Jones has probably submitted himself a spot on the roster unless they find some additional depth. And he's been playing pretty well, but I just, they need more than that. No other linebacker has proven to be even serviceable. And so that's a huge concern going into the third preseason game that I have. Now, those are pretty much my main thoughts on the game, on the quarterback battle. It was a tough one to get into. I mean, you're, you're not going to spend too much time on this on this game. The best thing that I think that everybody can do is try to move forward and build on this game rather than harp on this game. So with that said, let's look ahead to the rest of the preseason or training camp. And let's talk about who could be some potential surprise cuts and some unexpected people who might end up making a spot for themselves on this 53-man roster. Coming up. Now, as we look forward to the final preseason game and ultimately roster cutdowns, I think it's important to point out some potential surprise cuts where if you see these guys going into training camp, you wouldn't have thought that they would have been on the bubble. But I think just as training camp has played out and the preseason has played out, these guys have sort of played themselves out of a roster spot. Let's start with Freddie Swain. Freddie Swain has struggled throughout camp to be able to catch passes. It seems like unless he's wide open, he doesn't have he's not a reliable pass catcher. He seems to struggle with any any contested catches and I think they're just young guys like Kate Johnson who have played better than him they've they've also got two new rookie wide receivers in a Bo Melton and Derek Young who is pushing for that slot and while they've had some moments of struggles as well Freddie Twain is going to his third year now and he's done nothing but show that he's a fourth wide a fourth wide receiver at best and so if I'm the Seahawks, I'm I'm considering some of the upside of a Derek Young and Bo Melton, and they'll have the same struggles that a Freddie Swain would in terms of being reliable pass catchers, but at least they have the upside of improving, and they're cheaper. 
and like I said, they'll be on your team longer term. I don't really feel like Freddie Swain has done anything to deserve a roster spot. He's proven nothing to this point. I think he struggled just as much as your young guys, and I'd rather have those, given the youth movement that this team is understandably embracing. So I think Freddie Swain is probably one of your first candidates to get cut. Another surprise candidate is LJ Collier. And you can argue if he's a surprise candidate or not, as people thought that he should be cut last year. But he's just been out with injury. And Miles Adams has pushed him to the brink. He's made things very uncomfortable if you're LJ Collier because he's had a sack in both preseason games. He's had flash plays in preseason. And he just seems to give you more juice. This 3-4 system seems to really complement his playing style better. And sure, he's got some tweener type of things to his body, but so does LJ Collier. I just don't really know if LJ Collier gives you anything. Even in this new system, I know there was a thought that this new system could benefit him, but I think this team who needs talent, who needs depth, if I'm them, I take the upside in a Miles Adams who is cheaper. It can it can save you a million dollars by cutting LJ Collier. Is that much? No. But like I said, I think you'd be taking the more talented player. If LJ Collier stays on this team and they cut Miles Adams instead, I think it's just because they think that they can stash Miles Adams. But I'm not so sure about that. I think that might be a miscalculation on their part. I think somebody is more likely to swipe up a Miles Adams than an LJ Collier who's done nothing to this point to earn a spot on anybody's team. It doesn't matter that he's a first-round talent. If you turn on that film, there is very little to be impressed by in it, by LJ Collier in his time in, on this team. And I don't think that he did anything in the mock game either. I, there were no reports on him flashing. There were no reports on him flashing in training camp before his injury. He's just kind of always there. And if you're just looking for a body, like I said, in my opinion, you take the upside. If it were me, I'd cut Freddie Swain. I'd cut LJ Collier. There's no need to be attached to draft picks, especially in the final year of their deals. Move on to the guys who, who will help you in the future because that's really the direction that this team is looking towards now. And then the final surprise cut that I didn't think I'd ever say is Marquise Blair. I think Marquise Blair is in a stacked safety room. He's got competition now. Of course, Jamal Adams, you got Quandre Diggs. Those are your two starters, always. Well, Ryan Neal has proven to be a competent backup. And who I think makes Blair expendable is Josh Jones, who has emerged and who has had an incredible training camp. A tackle for a loss, some flash plays whenever he's gotten in there. He plays with violence. He plays with aggression. And that's Blair's calling card. But it seems to translate into still get the big plays with Josh Jones, but you don't get the lack of fundamentals that comes with Marquise Blair. And if I'm the Seahawks, I'm just cutting bait. Not only has Marquise Blair been injury prone, but the mental mistakes. You can't be in year four and not have fundamentals down. At that point, that's not something you're trying to coach out of somebody. At that point, that's tendencies and that's that's incoachability that's the you've shown that you're not capable of receiving the coaching that you've received that you're not able to apply the coaching I'm sure 
that Marquise Blair has had plenty of teachings, tape on how you don't headhunt. But yet, Marquise Blair, his style, he headhunts. He got a penalty for unnecessary roughness because he hunt he headhunts when he's making these tackles trying to be so violent and if you haven't got it trained in your head by now I don't really think the team needs to waste any more time on trying to teach those basic fundamentals that rookies can come in and yet comprehend even over you so those are my top three most likely candidates who you know may be surprise cuts you might see these guys all three cut and to be honest I would be happy to see these three guys cut. I just think that the better players should win. Again, Pete Carroll's mantra, always compete. If it really is always compete, then your draft status shouldn't matter. The fact that you were brought in at X years ago and they've invested so much time in you shouldn't matter. Let the best guys play. Let the hungry guys play. These other guys have had opportunities. Let them catch on somewhere else. I don't think they've shown you that much upside for either of these players. I mean, Blair does have the most upside of all the players between Freddie Swain, LJ Collier, and and Marquise Blair. I think he does have the highest upside. But if you can't get those mental errors, if you can't get those fundamentals down, then what are you? What can you really provide to the team and how can they trust you? And so with that said, I would love to see all three of these players gone. I would. I don't want to see Josh Jones cut. I think he deserves a spot on this roster. I think I'd rather see Miles Adams and what he can bring to this team. He's a more intriguing talent anyway. And like I said, I think he'll be more effective. And if he's not, it's not like LJ Collier was bringing you anything regardless. So that's my take on the surprise cuts. But I don't just want to talk about surprise cuts and have that be it. Let's talk about some of the guys who I think nobody thought they would make a roster spot but I think have really shown themselves to be worthy of a roster spot through their play all offseason long one Vi Jones I mentioned him earlier in terms of the linebacker depth this is a very very thin position and Vi Jones is one of the few who have made minimal mistakes even if they do still need to show areas of development now if they could Vi Jones and bring him on the practice squad fine but I think they still need the depth so unless they plan on replacing him with a more rotation worthy caliber player I think he deserves a roster spot but again I'm not as hot on that because I do think he's still developmental I think he is more of a practice squad level kind of guy but I, I like his upside I like the reliability that he's been able to bring even despite his development still needing to be there And so hopefully he can make a spot on this roster or the team can upgrade from him through the waiver wire. The second player has been talked about quite a lot, and that's Michael Jackson. No, not the singer. Michael Jackson, the cornerback for the Seattle Seahawks. He came in last year and he stuck stuck around and he just seems to be making plays left and right. He was a high rated corner last, uh, last game too. And... Even in training camp, he's just making these plays, taking advantage of opportunities. I think he's an excellent depth piece, especially with Trey Trey Brown being officially placed on the pub list. He's going to miss the first four weeks. I think this is an easy opening for for Michael Jackson, and hopefully he can take advantage of this opportunity. I would love to see him on this roster. That's excellent cornerback depth. They'll have Artie Burns, Shelby, uh, sorry, Sidney Jones, 
with cornerbacks Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant following up and then just, just have a fifth guy around, Mike Jackson. I'd keep him there. Like I said, you got Trey Brown on PUP. Maybe when they bring back Trey Brown, maybe they cut Michael Jackson, but I just think he's proven enough that he's a guy that I, I want on this team. He's just shown that he's worthy of that. I've already talked about Miles Adams. I'm not going to talk about it too much more, but he has consistently been one of the better defensive linemen, even outperforming some of our starters. He's got the upside of youth. I think the scheme fits him well. He plays hard. He plays smart. And I think he does have a ceiling to him to some degree because of his size. But I absolutely love the effort and playmaking potential that he brings to this team. And so I think he's made quite a name for himself and I think he deserves a spot on this roster if you go going by play alone then he should win this he should win this and it shouldn't even be close and then finally something that's been interesting to watch all offseason is the raw receiver depth and who is really separating themselves because I believe that there was an opportunity to push DS Gritch for the wide receiver three spot and I don't think anybody was able to do that in training camp there were just too many drops missed opportunities I think from the wide receiver rooms from those young wide receiver players but a player that I think has outside of special teams been very consistent is Kate Johnson I think he's had an excellent showing especially as we've gone down the down the stretch of training camp whenever he's been called upon from a wide receiver perspective if you ignore the muffed the muffed punt on special teams He's just been consistent. He's been solid. And I think he's shown some real upside. He's shown some reliability, like I said. And I think he's a guy who's pushed out Freddie Swain. If I, if you ask me to choose between Cade Johnson and Freddie Swain, I'm going to take Cade Johnson. I think Freddie Swain is what he is. But Cade Johnson has some some quickness, some upside, some uh, just some gadgety plays. And I think he's able. He's, he seems like he'll be better at catching against contested on Roberts I mean, against contested targets and that's exactly what you need especially given the quarterback battle that's going to be happening this year it's interesting to say that an undrafted free agent it could it that he would be more effective than a Freddie Swain who was drafted but that's how these things play out sometimes it doesn't always go off your draft position and I really hope that this is the year that we see a difference in the cuts and that they prioritize the guys who really have earned the spots over just having these obsessions with these guys who have not really done anything to show it like a Freddie Swain or Penny Hart for example Penny Hart is always talked about as being a reliable play hard kind of guy but he's never produced anything on the field he's played but he's never given you anything at the position and so I'd rather move in a different direction. You're embracing the youth movement anyway. Why not start by giving Kay Johnson a roster spot on the 53 man? Well, I know one thing for sure, and that's I'm interested to see how this next final preseason game against the Dallas Cowboys on Friday pans out. Be sure to check us out on Saturday for our post-game reaction. This should be our first week having two podcasts in one week, and that's something that we're going to be trying to do moving forward. So until then, make sure to follow me on Twitter. You can find me at CandiceH901. That's CandiceH901. And be sure to follow the show, Ethos Seahawks, on Twitter, at Ethos Seahawks. 
Also, we have just started a YouTube channel, so if you're not big on podcast platforms, you can always listen to our show on YouTube at Seahawks360 Sports Ethos. Be sure to look us up and be sure to subscribe to the show. All right, that's all the time we have for now. That's it. I'm out. And as always, go Hawks.